Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the Hideaway Podcast, episode 39. 39. What should we talk about first? Well, the first show we saw this week was Cuisine in Confessions. Cuisine in Confession. Spoiler alert. <laughs> they throw flour at the end of the show. Into the audience. Into the audience and it all over beautiful. themselves. And if you're a celiac like myself and can't inhale flour, you should not go to the end of the show. No. Leave before bows or else. Well, what happened? So I inhaled it. <laughs> And I just felt so sick for the rest of the day. But the show is really good. Yeah, the show is great. Sydney and Melvin, who are two acrobats from St. Louis, and they were amazing. They did this really, really good hoop diving act. There was this guy, Matthias, who did a Chinese pole number with like some insane drops and an amazing story about amazing. his dad. He has a really, really awesome cast number. It's cool to see the Seven Fingers back in New York at my alma mater. And I, yeah. <laughs> there is something, though, that I have a question about as far as using the performers actual life stories Mm. as what gives the show a narrative they had the performers like sit down the director and creator of the show and just talk about their lives and while they record them and specifically for melvin and sydney's act they're Actual voices are played while they're doing their number. Yeah, this is the confessions part of Cuisine and Confessions. And everyone's telling a bit of their story with their number. But theirs, to me, was like the most... uh, Theirs and um, and the Matthias Chinese Bowl. I just just wonder if that's... I don't know, because the course line became a whole lawsuit, basically, about how you can't really use people's stories in that way and not give them creative credit for that or royalties for it. And I obviously don't know how how Seven Fingers is dealing with it, but just having their life stories as what is driving that number to me just doesn't feel I don't know. I mean like it's a really powerful moment, so in that sense as an audience member, I really enjoyed it, but uh, like from a ethical standpoint i just don't i just don't like the fact that their actual stories are what is making the show interesting in a story sense uh yes <laughs> i i know what you're saying i mean the seven fingers do this kind of thing a lot and sometimes i often i think they nail it obviously they nailed it the most when it was the seven fingers doing speaking about themselves mm-hmm. originally because it was all performer created and right. all you know no conflict of interest or no sense of using somebody else's essentially sad story for your show's benefit. Um, But, you know, I think these dudes are probably pretty keen to do it and like the idea. And, you know, no one was forced into it, I don't think. No, no one was forced into it. No. And, like, frankly, it's a really powerful moment. The two moments are, like, incredibly... Uh, powerful, they stay with you. You think about it after. afterwards, yeah. Yeah, so in that sense, Shana did an amazing job, really killed it with that. I'm just thinking of from a different point of view of, like, stories and whose who's are they to tell. Yes. Um, and that's a question. Particularly in circus. Particularly in circus. We saw another circus show this week. Circus 1903. Man, so it was at Madison Square Garden, but we were going to Madison Square Garden when Penn Station had a stampede. And people no, were stampeding Penn, past us out of Penn Station. People thought they heard a taser 
and they thought it was gunshots, so they were stampeding away. But Google, like Google this, like there's some crazy, crazy footage of like a real stampede out of Penn Station. And of course, we were coming out of Penn Station to go to Madison Square Garden, and people were like, turn around, go down, go down, do not come outside. And I was, I have a very high flight uh, <laughs> reaction, so I wanted to flee. And uh, I was like, no, we got to go see the circus. So we went and saw the circus. And uh, I thought the New York Times did a really interesting description of this show. It's a it's a circus show by the team who made the Broadway magic show, The Illusionists. And what they are clearly really good at is sort of these large scale theater shows that have a very high degree of technical level, have a good sort of magic style based host and good costumes, good set, good story. But everything is sort of just good and well executed upon, mm-hmm. but nothing really, to me, elevated. There are maybe the puppets could have done that, because rather than having real elephants, they had puppet elephants. Mm-hmm. But you and I were talking about this a little bit afterwards, is that the thing that's weird about elephants is people who feel like that's animal cruelty to have animals on stage doing tricks. But even if they're puppets, you are romanticizing that idea. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to divorce one's feelings about animal rights in the circus from an act, even though it's puppets. And I think that just creates an odd mm-hmm. tension within my, at least myself. Yeah. The way in which I use the puppets was kind of, I don't know, you have this, you have this opportunity with a puppet, right, to make it do anything you want. Because it's not a real animal. And at least have someone riding the elephant. Or, you know, yeah. like if we were going back to 1903, doing that moment with an elephant, rather than just having the elephant puppet walk out, drink some water, and then a little baby elephant run out, and then go into intermission. Yeah. But I, I agree with you. Everything was good. It was way, all the, good. The way the New York Times said it was that it wasn't as spectacular as Cirque du Soleil as like showy as Ringling or as intimate as Big Apple. But it's not a criticism of the thing. Mm. It sort of just lacked a little bit of whatever that special flavor yeah. is. I mean, I think like also after, you know, doing Slumber, our, our show, it's really hard to create a show that feels unique and feels... Like something's like a, like a new voice. Yeah, but also like satisfies people yes, who want exactly. something. Exactly, as a satisfying product. Because you can create something new, but it cannot be satisfying. Yes. Right? And like Circus 1903 was a new product, right? They're using puppets. It's a little bit more quote-unquote story-driven, which I really don't think it is. Um, it's, you know, it's like the classic like act, ringmaster, act. But you always like a little unsatisfying. One of the things that uh, jumping all over the place, I've been wanting to talk about the podcast since I read this article, is the question is, did Disney kill Ringling? The fan theory on the internet. <laughs> fan theory. I mean, you read me the article, but, or, but why don't you tell people what the theory is? So I'll link the original article in the description. But basically, this guy theorizes that the reason Ringling is closing is because Disney could potentially buy Feld Entertainment, which owns Ringling. So Feld Entertainment has, I think it's 27 shows, only two of which are Ringling. The rest are 
essentially Disney properties on ice or monster truck jams that are things that Disney doesn't own. But or Marvel. Marvel. Marvel's a Disney. Uh, exactly. Marvel Live is Disney. They do their shows. Um, and Monster Truck is something that Disney could own mm-hmm. and would be appealing and has this crossover audience and could be tied in with ESPN and all these things. So they, they're very two symbiotic companies. And Disney gets to do the bigger strategy story stuff and Feld is like specializes in the putting shows into all these local arena markets. And the issue is that, well, and the Felds have grown this business over like 70 years among over three generations of people and bought Ringling at one point and are now closing it, the theory goes, because they, it would prevent Disney from being able to buy Feld Entertainment and them to merge, which would probably mean a great payout for Kenneth Feld and his family. All the credit to them. That's why you start a business in the first place. But Disney can't be associated with animal cruelty. Like, all Disney is all about their image. Mm-hmm. And whether or not you think Ringling had animal cruelty or how you feel about animals in shows, the public thinks, mm-hmm. for the most part, that animal cruelty exists in Ringling, and those two things are associated. Even if you don't think it and don't believe it, you are aware of this, and it's an association that exists. And Disney does not want that association. Disney does also not want to buy Feld and then close Ringling because they don't want to be the people who killed, killed the circus. Killed the circus. Because um, again, for Disney, it's all about image because they're a you know image product oriented company. Mm-hmm. So, best possible solution: Kenneth closes it, gets to blame it on PETA, and real legit reasons. But they don't have to sell it. It's not Big Apple Circus where it has to go away. Like mm-hmm. they can close it and reopen it five years from now if they want or if Disney wants to do Ringling the movie like they'll still own the I rights. wonder though if Feld sells their company to Disney if Feld can keep the the rights to basically a portfolio right yeah. if Disney's buying that whole thing and then Ringling and all that entity goes with it or the Felds can keep Ringling and it's a separate separate I'm thing. sure you could negotiate for it if you were in the Felds position ultimately I think but it doesn't it strike. It won't leave the Felds. No, like, but they don't it, strike me though as like the family that wants to just, just do Ringling. No, I mean they are. They have. They have, Ringling's only been a thing they have done for a few generations. That's why I'm wondering if they even would keep it. Yeah, I mean, I think it. It just makes sense to hold on to it until somebody else wants it. Mm-hmm. When when the next person comes along, well, maybe like, Bello Knock can buy Ringling from the Felts. Exactly. <laughs> Bello versus Nick Walenda for Big Apple. <laughs> I was very bummed that um, that that Bello uh, did not get Big Apple. Why? Because I mean, it will be interesting to see what happens with Big Apple. I feel like it's a industry that you really need to like know and love and really want to put time into understanding because it's really not easy and like the what appeals to people and what doesn't appeal to people is still for this day and age I think is still unknown um as far as like specifically in New York you know like Torok was here wasn't selling super well wasn't selling bad you know uh Curious wasn't selling well Circus 1903 seems like it's selling okay. We were there on a Friday night and it was half full. Yeah, fr- half full on a Friday night. I mean, Cuisine and Confessions. Not sold out. Not sold out, but like also, you know, short stints. So, I, I mean, it's interesting to see like what works and what doesn't. It seems like, you know, something like Queen of the Night was did a little bit better. Not great, but it definitely did better. Pippin. Pippin. Did great. But that's a musical. I mean, yeah. so I think 
it would be it'll be interesting to see what happens with Big Apple. But I wanted it to go to like Bella because I feel like he grew up in the circus. Yeah, maybe he would just um, I don't know. Just don't the, know. The, the the passing it down to a circus family is yeah. different from passing it into I don't know outsiders is maybe how it feels. Yeah. Um, I know that they're definitely not all outsiders who are working on no. it. Even if the people who invested in it and bought it did. They have a director that we know and love, Mark Lonergan, who's the yeah. podcast guest, um, and Joel Jeske, who's writing the show with him, are doing it. They did the show two years ago, are slated to do it again this year. They also directed Smirkus. He's doing it again this summer and did it last summer. So I have faith that, that Mark will pull through, whether or not like it has the same culture and vibe and poor business planning that it did before. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm hoping they don't, but I think that's harder if... You're new to service. Yeah, I have to admit, I haven't read the articles yet, but Jessica Hentoff keeps sharing articles about how, you know, circus isn't, is not dead in America. And I like that she's sharing them because even though you see these two massive companies closing, there is still so much circus in America. There can be and should be more. But I, I'm glad that Big Apple is now, you know, resurgence, resurgence? The resurgence of the new Big Apple. Apple. Yeah, and hopefully at some point Ringling will come back and... But it's always an evolution, right? It's always changing. So... that change. Speaking of people who are creating the next evolution and uh, performers of... Performers, creators of Circus, uh, is our podcast guest today. Yes. Who's that? Elsie Smith. Who is one of the founders of the New England Center for Circus Arts. Also known as NECA. NECA, based in Brattleboro, Vermont. Somewhere I actually trained at when I was like 14, 15, 16, 17 probably. I would drive like two and a half hours from my town in Weston all the way up I-91. For those of you in New England who care about the road. Which which road to get there. But I-91 will get you right there. Google Maps. Google Maps it. Like multiple times a month. Like basically every weekend. Because they would do classes for people who were in Smirkus and who were teenagers. Who were for sure one of my uh, instructors early, early days was our guest Elsie. Who has an amazing performing career that's included Cirque du Soleil and gigs and little tours around the world. While simultaneously also being the founder of... The U.S.'s longest-running professional uh, circus school, and and with her sister, with, yeah, with her sister, her twin Serenity, sister, her twin sister Serenity. <laughs> they just every time she talks about her and her twin sister, it reminds me of the musical Sideshow, because oh. you know it's all about the twin sisters doing their act together. Yes. Granted, they're Siamese twins in the show, and <laughs> Serenity and Elsie are not Siamese twins, no, but they do this like twins. trapeze act together. And every time she talked about it in the circus, I was like, I would just be going through the soundtrack of of Sideshow. <laughs> Uh, and I really loved uh, this conversation we had with Elsie. We really talked about some interesting things when it comes to uh, teaching circus, what's changed about uh, the learning circus and creating material and circus research just in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. what it's like to start a circus school and grow it from uh, a room in a warehouse to this new massive building that they're currently building and, and still fundraising for. And just, you know, what circus life is like somebody who's been in their entire life who's made it work has yeah. has done it you know yeah. i had to leave about 20 minutes into the conversation if that so i drop out of the conversation early but it's because i wasn't there not because i had nothing to say but so i'm as excited as everyone listening to hear the interview but if you like our podcast make sure to like us on facebook follow us on instagram rate us on instagram like us on instagram 
no, sorry, iTunes. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Tweet us. And Elsie asked us to tell you about their Kickstarter campaign. Which we mentioned a few times in the show, but check the link in the description. Go give now. Support their new trapezium. Is that Here's what it's our, that's what it's called, the trapezium. trapezium. That's and, hard to say, trapezium. Support their new trapezium. Enjoy your interview with Elsie Smith. But you're from Western Mass originally, right? I was born and raised in Huntington, Massachusetts, which is basically where you can't get anywhere to there. You know, it's the middle of nowhere. Did circuses come to that part of Massachusetts? I didn't see a circus until after I started working for the circus, and I was 18 years old. So I grew up in like a little log cabin with no running water and electricity. (laughs) And uh, my parents were actually living in a tent when we were born. And uh, my dad had been kicked in the face by a horse that he was using to build a cabin with. It was sort of like catatonic for a month. And then they thought they were going to have one boy in March. And they got two girls in January and threw us in the back of a little um, Volkswagen Beetle and drove to Florida to get away from the winter. And Something then went back and built the house. very circusy, even yeah, though it's right. not that circusy. Like yeah. The gypsy caravan. <laughs> the gypsy caravan, the sort of communal living, because it wasn't hippie, but it was communal back to the land you know everybody gardening together separate cabins kind of thing but it's just like being on tour with a bunch of circus people (laughs) where you have like separate rooms but you have this communal eating and travel lifestyle did you do dance or gymnastics or i climbed trees and worked in my dad's sawmill and uh was a bookworm basically i would take my books up into the trees to get away from all my brothers and sisters (laughs) <laughs> Do you have more siblings than just your twin serenity? There's a lot of us. Yeah, there's uh, five, uh, seven, or eight, depending on how you count it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you're the only two who ended up in circus. We uh, we pulled our brothers and sisters in. You know, my my little sister helped. Uh, she taught at Smirkus Camp when Bill and Serenity, my sister and her husband, taught at Circus Smirkus Camp. Uh, my brother went on tour with Circus of the Kids with us for a little while and claims that being able to fire eat helped him get into law school. Um, but they are not aficionados at this point in time. They're just supporters. So what was the first circus show that you did see? Vidbell's Old Time Family Circus in Monticello, New York. I'd gotten a summer job teaching at uh, French Woods Festival for Performing Arts. Uh, so both Serenity and I were there. And about halfway through the summer, um, Bruce Pfeffer, who was the um, person who ran Circus of the Kids, which is the company that was uh, on site at French Woods that year, uh, he took a whole bunch of us to see this little touring family circus. Um, and I've since met Jenny Vidbell, and, uh, who was with Big Apple Circus for a while. She's an animal act. She's an animal act, yeah. There was a whole article about what she was her doing with all the animals. Yeah, right. she's pretty amazing, and yeah. her sister's an aerialist because she's actually a twin also. So. Oh, she is? I yeah. Didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So that was my first experience was a really traditional mud show. And what about learning circus? Pretty much, I got to fly in the flying trapeze like twice, and then I showed up at French Woods, and they said, great, you don't have any circus experience. And I said, nope, but I'm here. (laughs) And we spent about two weeks learning fire eating, trapeze, trick roller skating, how to spot the rolling globe, how to set a Spanish web, and then they sort of, you know, let us teach kids. What was appealing to you about it? Um, That I was away from home was the main reason and that I had a summer job like that's really why um I'd had 
two opportunities to do a little bit of circus before that, just, you know, like a week at a club med and doing something that was completely foreign to anyone that I knew um, was really special. You know, to be able to go back to my little tiny high school in the middle of absolutely nowhere, Massachusetts, and feel special was really why I enjoyed circus. And what took you and your sister out of Massachusetts? Um, The circus. So um, after a year... Um, actually, after a summer at French Woods, I um, basically ran away and joined the circus. And Serenity took a couple more months because she'd had an injury. And then she got called up by Ringling Brothers because we had a friend who was working with us at French Woods. And she there was an opening for a dancer. Remember, we never took dance lessons. <laughs> um, who did uh, Spanish Web. And they called us up. And at the time, Serenity was caretaking our grandmother, who um, was on her way uh she was very ill and serenity said well if you take my place taking care of our grandmother i can head off to ringling brothers sure no problem so she three days later she was uh, on site training for an aerial position at ringling and toured with the red unit wow that's awesome yep (laughs) do you remember what what uh edition it was it was the gunther gable williams farewell tour whoa that's super cool yep yeah. Um, for those who don't know, Gunther Gable Williams was an animal trainer who uh, was very famous for sort of changing the way that uh, this, the the presentation of, of training the animal, making it less scary and more about them being your like family and friends. <laughs> um, so, but did you join that tour as well at some point? No, I ended up traveling around with Circus of the Kids, teaching social circus to kids all up and down the East Coast. So um, orphanages and um, community centers and schools and things like that. So I was really um, learning about the art of teaching circus, but also about what teaching circus to kids and communities can do. You know, getting 300 kids to perform in a circus show after three weeks. Um, And then, of course, I was getting a chance to be on stage as well because I was partnering, you know, Rollabola and partnering... Uh, trick roller skating and things like that so how old were you guys at this point 18 oh so you guys just left right from high school and went well we did one year of college because we were um uh, a year ahead because we were homeschooled you know that whole backwards thing we were homeschooled for a little while and so ended up in uh, college at 17 where um, did you guys go university oh. of massachusetts oh umass yeah we got um Serenity had gotten into Dartmouth and I got into Smith College, but because of uh, really great scholarships, full uh, tuition to UMass, that sort of thing, we ended up doing the state state school route. Which is, UMass now is like a really good school. It it was pretty good then too, but I also was pretty much unprepared for college in the sense that um, I'd been sort of on my own for a little while and also... Um, not really sure what I wanted to do, you know, sort of academically inclined to do a lot of different things, but nothing was jumping off the plate. So when uh, circus, you know, reared its head and was completely different and all all consuming, uh, I never ever looked back at college. Well, I have to imagine since I've heard a little bit about your parents, but were they supportive of the decision to leave traditional school and do circus? They were. They were very That's supportive. what I would have assumed. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was sort of, you know, we were paying our own way because it was a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, 
you know, they thought, you know, as, as long as you're happy and we never had to, you know, go back to them for support. So what's not like, to, so what's not to like, right? <laughs> Great. Bye. Yeah. And you may get over to the West Coast at some point soon mm-hmm. in your, your career. Yeah. So, uh, Serenity met her husband, Bill Fortune, on the Ringling Brothers uh, Red Unit. Is that his real name? It is his real name. Oh my gosh. He's actually from uh, New Jersey. Oh, really? And did AMDA, the mm-hmm. American Musical yeah. and Dramatic Academy, and ended up supporting a friend to go to Clown College uh, auditions, and he got in, and the friend didn't, so he ended up going to Clown College. What a great stage name and a real name. Yes, and I think his clown name was Soup Bone. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, so he and my sister met, and they actually were just friends for a while, and then Bill came to work for Circus of the Kids with me, Um, and then when I left Circus of the Kids, Serenity came back and worked uh, for Circus of the Kids. She had been touring with Farfan uh, Circus in Japan. Um, so then she and Bill got together while touring with Circus of the Kids and then ended up um, getting jobs with the Pickle Family Circus. So Bill was a performer for the Pickle Family Circus when they first moved out. And Serenity was uh, teaching at the Little Pickle Family Circus School. And then when the Pickle Family Circus went bankrupt, um, the circus school that we know as the Circus Center now um, was developed, and it was called the San Francisco Center for Circus Arts at the time. And Serenity was one of the founding coordinators um, working in the office. I always think it's so amazing how everyone is just so entwined, especially in this very specific era in the United States, just how everyone was at the Pickle Family Circus or Big Apple, and then they all twirled together. Cross-pollinated. Yeah. So were you guys uh, like thinking about starting your own circus school when you saw the San Francisco one happening, or was that <laughs> way down the line? Never, never. Uh, we um, At the time that my sister got involved with starting the circus school in San Francisco, I had moved to Canada. Um, I'd followed a person there. Um, and where we were in northwestern Ontario, there wasn't any circus. So I got into teaching trampoline. And I'd never taken trampoline. I just had some experience with teaching. And they suggested that, you know, I might want to take the trampoline coaching certification course, which at that time in Canada, you could do totally separate from gymnastics. Mm. Um, so I was doing that while Serenity was uh, training with Master Lu Yi um, to put together a partner acrobatic act with Bill. Um, So about three years after that, I finally made my way to San Francisco and was pretty much, you know, working full time at a shoe store, training a very little bit, um, just, you know, to make ends meet in San Francisco while Serenity and Bill were off on tour. And it was a couple years later that I ended up having the time to... um, do more training, get a little bit more involved in performing, and then I took over teaching a lot of the classes, the aerial classes. So by then, you know, I was in my mid-20s before I even thought about really going into performing. And it was just totally by accident that someone contacted the circus school where I was running the office at the time, and they said uh, it was Cirque Productions, and they wanted to do a audition. And I, you know, inquired what kind of acts they were looking for, so I could share that out with the community. And they said we'd really like two girls on the trapeze. And at that time, my sister had been doing trapeze with Aloysia Gavre mm. um, from Cirque School LA, and uh, Aloysia was moving on. Pickle Family Circus was going through its second um, bankruptcy situation, and uh, Serenity and I just threw something together. And I got the job. 
So we went off uh, for a holiday tour with Cirque Productions and then ended up uh, spending a whole summer in Atlantic City. Was it easy to work with your twin at first or were there lots of like sibling challenges as far as working together and being together all day every day we actually always worked really well together um i don't know if it's because we're the oldest of many siblings but Mm. there was never really that opportunity to sort of get involved in sibling rivalry because there were so many other you know family members to get along with instead and were you training trapeze at the time or was it a different uh different duo number it was trapeze we were always sort of uh, you know first love was always the trapeze and you were doing swinging or static trapeze? This was static trapeze. Um, it was for a casino gig, so sort of low to the ground, um, static trapeze, easy to rig. Um, and we'd never had any training. So you've noticed I've never said that I had a trapeze teacher. Um, so we were really, you know, it was cold. There was no heat in the building in San Francisco. We had a couple of videos that we would look at. But essentially, it was before YouTube, before any of the sort of research modalities that people use now. So we were basically crawling all over each other, trying to create new work and come up with something. So how did that sort of act progress to the one that most people have seen on video or are aware of from when you guys were in Cirque du Soleil or afterwards? Several years after we started performing our own um, trapeze act, the one that we did with Cirque Productions, um, we had done a couple of auditions for Cirque du Soleil. um, And, uh, you know, we'd walk in the door and they'd basically look at us and say, well, you can't tumble. I was super proud of learning how to do a back walkover when I was 24, by the way. But they were right. I couldn't tumble. So they sent us on our merry way and then would invite us to the next audition. And the same thing would happen. Um... And then Saltimbanco, which had been created with the Stebbin sisters, um, was a, a very successful show. But at that time, in the early um, 90s or the mid-90s, uh, Cirque du Soleil was doing their shows and then putting them away. And they had just discovered the concept of touring Europe or touring Australia and Japan, but they had closed up Saltimbanco and hired most of the performers to do O. And then they decided they wanted Saltimbanco back and they had to find some key spots for the acts that were uh, pre-existing. So they were looking for identical twins who did trapeze. So uh, Sarah Stebbin came to visit San Francisco um, because she had some friends there and she saw our photograph on the wall, contacted the director of the show and said, you got to get these girls to Montreal for an audition. So we were actually flown to Montreal for a private audition. And um, it was Halloween and we were terrified um, because, again, we'd never had a a real coach. And they put us on the swinging trapeze, which was godly high off the ground, (laughs) and basically said, jump and throw yourself around. And we basically said, okay, this is the only week of training I'm ever going to get in swinging trapeze, so we might as well make the best of it. And at the end of that week, uh, they asked us to perform the act that we had created and we thought great this is our chance to perform for Cirque du Soleil and they they put you in a room and then invite all of the office people to come watch and uh, we had a great time and thought that that was going to be the end of it Um, we were older than their normal demographic we had no gymnastics background no training Um, but they offered us a job um, at the end of that week and it was terrifying to contemplate getting paid $50 a week after taxes um, when you're like 
paying for normal expenses. And we walked home to the hotel that night thinking, we can't possibly do this. We have to do this. What a great opportunity. We can't possibly do this. Um, and we convinced ourselves that, yes, we would actually do it. Was Cirque du Soleil a pretty different company, at least as far as size and culture uh, back then than it is now? Because now it's got thousands of staff members. It was a very different company. As I said, they had just, you know, gotten this idea of of keeping their shows going, but sending them to other countries. Um, And we got a chance to do a show that I think of as one of the sort of old good shows. Um, Saltimbanco was not as techie as Kidam, which was sort of the next really big show that came after it. Um, We did all our own rigging. We walked out in the middle of intermission. They lowered points down from the ceiling. We clipped our safety lines in. That is very different. Very, very different. And for me, with the background that I had with touring, with more of a traditional uh, show uh, mentality with Circus of the Kids, putting my hands on my own equipment before I threw myself you know, out over the audience, 40 feet above their heads, was really important. Um, as a teacher, I guess I'm maybe a little bit of a control freak and I don't trust all the tech stuff. Um, and that said, a lot of the sort of motorized systems were at their beginning um, technology. Um, so with Saltimbanco, we got sort of the last of the old style shows. Um, and it also was a very upbeat show, um, very fun, lively. So it was a really enjoyable show to be part of. You know, you left the site at night dancing, um, whereas some of the more modern shows have a darker theme to them and can can wear on the soul after four mm-hmm. years of touring. So what did you tour with Saltimbanco? Where did we tour? Yeah. Um, we did the Asia Pacific tour. So we got a chance to, you know, test the show out in Montreal and in Ottawa. And then they flew us to Australia. We did five cities in Australia, then Singapore, Hong Kong. And then we came stateside for Seattle and Portland and then went to Japan for 14 months. That's a pretty awesome tour. Those are all good places. They're all awesome places. And it's uh, especially in Japan, it's a really good place to be paid to go because it's so expensive. <laughs> Um, so when you guys came back, what was what your head at? Were you like, we want to keep touring, we want to do something different, we're over this trapeze thing, or what was what were you feeling? Um, Serenity and her husband were ready to start a family, so that was the big reason for us to uh, finish being on the road. And we were also ready to do something that was a little bit more our own creation. So we had spent a lot of late nights in the tent, um, creating a new act on a new, um, sort of slightly different trapeze. And uh, we were backstage with uh, Seven Fingers folks who who weren't the Seven Fingers yet, but they were working on new material. And then the folks who are Vertical Tango, Sam Payne and Sandra Foisy. So we all spent a lot of time backstage together and, you know, all had ideas of how to move forward after a Cirque du Soleil career. Um, Serenity and Bill and I all moved back to Vermont because that's where our family had sort of shifted north um, during our um, time away from home. And we ended up in Brattleboro, Vermont, which is a small town, but it's on the train directly between Montreal and New York. And there's an airport that's really easy to get to. So we thought it would be a really great place to sort of set down roots and still keep our career going. So we created a new act that's probably the one that most people know us for, which we call Dos Chicas, which is a spinning um, 
single point act that was designed to be done in 16 foot ceilings so we could really do it anywhere um, and we ended up going out to festivals like the Wuxiao Circus Festival in China, the Albacete Festival in Spain, and we also did a festival in Mexico City. Um, and then we did a lot of corporate work and touring with Cirque La Masque. And, and then we also created our own show with Nimble Arts, which is our performing company. It must have been great, though, being able to go back to Brattleboro and be in this super rural place and have all these things take you outside of it regularly. It's awesome. And uh, as a sort of country kid, farm kid, you know, fingernails dirty from working in the earth um, person, after being on tour in major cities like Tokyo and Sydney, it was a much-needed break. Mm. But it's also really fun to you know, run off and put the spanglies on and get fetid and be the famous circus performers and then come back and just, you know, be out in the middle of woods in a log cabin um, off the grid. And was the first, uh, was, it, was it called NECA originally or was it called Nimble Arts originally or, or something else? Well, we were Nimble Arts was the company that we founded right after we got to Vermont and we started teaching. Um, we were working like at the Aerial Dance Festival in Boulder, Colorado. We started some teacher training workshops and then people kept asking us, can you teach a little bit more? Can you do a little bit more? And then before we knew it, we had a couple people teaching classes for us. And then um, 10 years ago, we decided that in order to bring the school that we had created to the next step and to also make sure that it didn't become just a founder-driven organization, we knew that we had to create a not-for-profit. And that's when the New England Center for Circus Arts was born, specifically with the mission to create a community and a facility for circus. And in our minds... Uh, to create something that would live beyond us. Yeah, I think I must have been uh, taking your classes probably around that time when when you guys switched to a nonprofit. Because I remember driving from Connecticut like two hours there and two hours back, multiple weekends in a row. Because you guys did like a circus Mercus kids like weekend class for people all to come and do it, um, and it was awesome. Like I think NECA and like. The, local gymnastics place were the only two places in New England that I knew where I could get circus and acrobatic training. Yeah, we um, we really lucked out by having a really great relationship with Circus Mercus, like right from the get-go. Um, Serenity and Bill had taught at the summer camp years before, so when we landed back in Vermont, it was natural for us to reconnect, and we think of ourselves as well, sister organizations or supportive organizations were completely separate, but a lot of our coaches and staff work there. I've coached tour, Sunday and Bill coached tour. And like you said, a lot of the kids would come to get their sort of winter training and smirko fix um, at NECA. So it's uh, it's been a really great connection. And over the years, it's gotten more and more professional to the point at which it's probably the most legitimate professional teaching program in the States. I... Thank you for saying that. We've got 10 years under our belt, and we're very, very proud of the professional training program that we've had for 10 years. It was designed as a part-time program for people who didn't have a lot of economic resources or you know, someone to help them pay the bills. In that time, though, we've really explored what can really make American circus performers better. And so next year, so fall of 2017, is our first full-time training program. So it is going to be more expensive, but it is going to help us 
help people get to the professional level that they really want to um, because part-time circus training doesn't get you to the level you need to get to yeah but i think just the the program that has already existed so many people have gone through it who i know who use it as this awesome stepping stone between like i want to do circus i don't know how to either doing it professionally or doing a uh a, another degree in a foreign country, basically. So I saw uh, Kevin Beverly and Emily Nicole Tucker, I just saw in Australia, and they were both talking about how they were at NECA prior to going to ENC or to Montreal to train. Um, but it must be awesome seeing all these people uh, having gone through your program now being legitimate performers. Yeah, there are so many people that I think the American circus community doesn't know went through our program. Uh, we're so proud of them. There's like 120 people that have done that program. Um, and you're right that a lot of the people did the program and it was called ProTrack because it was designed to help bridge going from community circus or a summer camp to a professional training program. And we're really excited about our program now becoming that full-time training program so that people don't have to leave America to get it. Um, and having a new facility is going to help us with that a lot. So what kind of classes or things are you adding to the program that didn't exist before? What are the differences? Um, we're going to be able to have indoor flying trapeze and uh, swinging trapeze. So Serenity and I, um, the only place that we've been able to teach swinging trapeze since we left Cirque du Soleil is at Circus Mercus. Um, Kia and Lindsay, um, a lot of people know them. Isabel Patrowitz, who's a professional oh, yeah. flying trapezist, she did swinging trapeze with me. Yeah, she was just in Circus Vargas like mm-hmm. last season or two seasons ago. Yep, and she's doing great. Um, so now uh, we're also going to have a trampoline, tramp wall, basically the kind of things you can do in a 40-foot ceiling that you can't do in a 20-foot ceiling is what we're going to be able to offer in the new full-time program. And what kind of like level students are you looking for for people who are like listening to the podcast? I'm wondering, like, is this something I can do? We are looking for students who will not be broken by a full-time program. But other than that, you can have a really wide range of skill sets coming into the first year of the program. Um, so if you've only been training once a week or, and don't have a gymnastics or a dance background, we have a summer intensive that you can take just to see whether or not your body can hold up and whether or not you even have a passion for circus that will carry you through three years. Um, but if you have been doing circus more regularly, then you know we've got a year one and this year 2017 you can also apply to enter in year two eventually it will be a three-year program and everyone will start with the first year amazing uh jumping backwards a little bit what has it been like to grow your company basically from and i don't mean this in any kind of negative way but essentially like one room in a warehouse to what is now going to be a pretty massive circus training space and obviously there's other stress that comes with being an entrepreneur and and doing that but it must have been a crazy journey you guys have sort of been on in the last decade we have been on a crazy journey for the last decade because not only were we growing our performing career post Cirque du Soleil going off to festivals and and things like that we were without any pre-planning creating one of the largest circus schools in the United States and we never had thoughts of creating a circus school. It really developed organically, like you said, from a small um, room in a warehouse. And then people would show up and say, can you teach me more of this? Can you do more of that? We had people who said, can I move to Vermont and teach for you? And eventually it became 
several classes a week, full time, all year long. And then we would get another studio that we would add in, and then we would add another studio, and then we found another location that had higher ceilings. So now we were working on two different locations. Um, one of the things that happened, again, sort of by accident, because we didn't pre-plan any of this, is that we became recognized as good business people, not just crazy circus people. Um, our landlords are the Brattleboro developed Credit Corporation. I'll say that again. Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation. It's a mouthful. Um, and they're an economic um, development location. And they developed a business plan competition that they invited us to participate in. And I said to our landlord, I said, well, we're not trying to make a big business. Why should we you know, participate in the business plan competition? And they said, no, you are hiring people and bringing young people to the state. That's a business model that we want to support. So I was off on tour in Europe uh, with an aerial puppet show while Serenity was pregnant with her first son. And so she got to do all the heavy lifting, writing the competition and developing the business plan. And we won $20,000. And that was really the seed money that helped us develop what people know as the New England Center for Circus Arts today. Wow. And it is a not-for-profit, right? It is a not-for-profit. So how is that having a board and sort of the introduction of, you know, essentially what are outsiders into helping you grow, grow it? We knew right from the very beginning that Serenity and I, as two people... Um, with a real interest in teaching circus, didn't want to be bogged down with the business side of things. Even though we have shown ourselves to be decent business people, um, we wanted to have enough people around us that would take the load off of us so that we could be good teachers. Um, so having a board that was active was really important. And they've developed now that we've been working towards the new building and fundraising for $2.5 million, they've become a lot more active by necessity. And um, we're really looking forward to completing all of our fundraising, completing the building so Serenity and I can get back to more of the teaching that we are so passionate about. Yeah, let's talk about the fundraising. How is it going? What are you guys doing? How can listeners help? Well, um, we have a building plan that is in two parts. So we have a phase one and a phase two. The reason we did that is because $2.5 million is a fair chunk of money to raise. Although in the grand scheme of things, purchasing three acres and building a full-on circus school, that is actually not a lot of money because in Brattleboro, we were able to get the property for a steal, basically. Um, so we have raised 1.2 million out of the 2.5 million total that's awesome it's really awesome we have a couple of sort of magic donors in the community and then a lot of small donations is what it takes that amount has allowed us to go ahead with the first phase of the building so when you go onto our website and you see all the really cool pictures you'll see the big trapezium space which has the indoor flying trapeze a couple of offices the bathrooms it's 40 feet tall 
um, that's the first phase of the building. Once we have that built and we complete the fundraising to the 2.5 million total, we'll be able to add on some of the more intimate training studios that allow um, like a black box theater and you'll be able to sort of go into a room and shut the door and have some quiet training time, plus more offices and an outdoor performance space. So for Amazing. those of you who know Jacob's Pillow yeah. or Tanglewood, our oh, that is goal. a great idea. Yeah, isn't it great? I We need something for circus that is comprehensive with the indoor and the outdoor spaces, um, performances, classes, and right across the street are the hotels and the restaurants, but you can't see them because there's all the trees around you. So you can really come and be in the middle of this sort of Vermont rural experience, but have all of the services you need and a top of the line, state-of-the-art, amazing world-class circus facility. Oh, that sounds great. I can't wait to see shows uh, outdoors in Brattleboro. I've seen these photos of a few theaters in France that the Seven Fingers have played in, that's sort of just an outdoor amphitheater. And I'm like, oh man, that'd be so great to see a show in that that kind of setting. Yeah, I've had a chance to perform at the Jacob's Pillow um, outdoor um, performance space, and it's magical to be sort of in lights and with professional music, but to have the outdoor space and the natural amphitheater be the the stage. Um, so we're really very much looking forward to that, and that'll be part of the second phase of the whole building. One of the things that uh, Lindsay and I talked about on our last podcast and noticed when we were in Australia is... Basically how all of, uh, not all of, but so many young people have gone through circus programs as kids who don't become circus performers as adults, but it makes them audience members and fans and care about it as an art form. Do you feel like, or what do you see as far as the amount of people who go through it and this is just their touch with circus and, or their brushing with it and now come and see shows or are aware of it versus the people who come just for like hardcore, I want to learn tricks, I want to have an act, I want to become a circus performer. You've actually just touched on sort of part of what is the core of the mission of the New England Center for Circus Arts. We are not an elite circus school. There are other people out there that have talked about becoming an elite circus school. We are a community that is open to all abilities and all aspirations. And so someone who wants to be in Cirque du Soleil or aspires beyond Cirque du Soleil, which I think people need to start aspiring beyond that. Um, If someone simply wants to get fit or if someone wants to become a street performer, we are dedicated to creating a home for all of those people. And some of the programming that comes out of that is we have a high school program, for example. So the kids at the local high school, they can come to us for an hour and a half every single morning for their first period. They get elective credits towards graduation and they get to do circus. That's awesome. It's awesome. They get to move. They get to learn how to stretch. They learn how to be part of a team, keep each other safe. And then in class, we'll be like tired and sitting, sitting. Exactly. There's so much, a lot lot less ADD stuff going on. So they're actually more successful when they go back to their regular classroom. And those kids, if uh, if none of them end up becoming professional circus performers, doesn't phase me at all because the whole reason for them being at NECA is about team building and physical literacy and 21st century learning skills. These are sort of catchphrases for things like teamwork and hand-eye coordination. Um, and then, like you mentioned, they're becoming circus aficionados and circus um, audience members for the future and hopefully circus 
uh, supporters, donors later. Donors later. Um, but the real goal is that they're part of the community and they feel good about being part of that community. So I'm jumping around a little bit, but one of the things that I think you and your sister do really well and you don't see a lot of people do is create apparatuses. Can you sort of talk about what your process for that is and then maybe some of the things that you guys have created? Cool. I'm glad you noticed that. I've never... Uh, heard someone mention that before, but it's something that's a passion of mine. I think that um, I don't have a classic circus performer's physique. Um, as I mentioned, I didn't get started till I was much older. I didn't have a tumbling background. I was never going to be able to compete against the rhythmic gymnast who go onto the fabric and have these amazing uh, contortion bodies and things like that. So along the lines, uh, along the way of uh, developing our circus career, Serenity and I started to really look outside the box. Like, what could we do that's different so that we can show off something that's unique and special instead of trying to have an act that is just like anybody else's act and having to compete with amazing physicality. That said, you know, we, we have some pretty crazy tricks that we do as well, but we wanted to create something that was eye-catching in a different way. So some of the apparatus that we've created are the Tippy Lira, um, and we were inspired by a lot of other people to create what people know of as the Tippy Lira. It, we don't create out of a vacuum. Um, I also created a, a fabric loops act, so it's not just two pieces of fabric, it's different loops of fabric together that can be twisted around to make slings. I also developed something that's a, a hammock that falls apart halfway through the act huh. um, that I think uh, may have been used in other acts afterwards, but for me it was completely brand new and unique. Um, and then I think the other one that people might know us for is called the Aerial Halo, which originally came through Tanya Burka, and she had had someone make a prototype for her that she hung differently than we hang it, and she called it the eyeball. I believe she called it the eyeball. And so uh, when I was inspired to create something, I reached out to her and the manufacturer of that and got their permission to develop that apparatus in a different way. So I was really proud of the community coming together around sort of a new apparatus and giving uh, shared permission to let students work on it in a different way. But we went back to the original creators for that. Do you have like a philosophy or general like viewpoint of whatever your sort of technique research is and how you do it? Because sort of you've mentioned earlier that that's how you sort of did your original duo trapeze act was just sort of with self internal research on what tricks can we figure out? What can we do? Is there a method to, to how you guys approach that? Or is it, how, how do you think about it? Serenity and I have, I think, different ways of coming up with new material. And we swap that back and forth, depending on what act we're doing. So one of us might come up with a piece of music that makes us visualize a particular thing. Uh, one of us will have a dream with an image of of standing in a puddle lifting a leg and that became our uh our single instep trick that a lot of people have seen us do um i think in terms of creation we spend a lot of time bouncing ideas off of each other and in our career also off of other people because we've always been a duo so we work with uh not so much the internal uh, 
put on a video and dance around and see what comes out, but a little bit more of like what uh, a dialogue between two people around the images that are being created and the journey of what you start with. You just keep working on that and adding information from the people who are around until you get to a final goal. Mm. Um, so there's a couple of places in our acts that were created by the juggler that was on the tour uh, because he walked in the room and said, that's really cool. What would happen if you do this? So our artistic creative process is communal, I believe, um, which is sort of how I love circus is the communal aspect of circus in general. And I think I think teaching technique to somebody is probably a little bit more straightforward than what one would imagine you would you would do. But as far as teaching the artistic side of circus and act creation, how do you think about doing research? How do you communicate that to students? That's an interesting question because I work with so many different students and one of my goals is to not create little Elsies and little serenities. Um, I don't want the greater circus world to be able to tell that a student graduated from NECA. Um, I want them to know that a That's student a graduated from NECA. Because there are a lot of schools where you just go, oh, I've said it in other podcasts, I've only said it here, but oh, I know exactly where that person came from because it's always the same hand-to-hand technique or it's always the same swinging trap technique. Exactly. Um, and we don't want that to happen at NECA. I want to have um, students feel totally comfortable creating a burlesque act and completely comfortable aspiring to do street performing in Europe and uh, other people aspiring to a more Cirque style, whatever that actually is. Um, and so in the creative process, I find myself uh, using inquiry as opposed to uh stating to the students what I want them to do. So I will uh, find out what a student is inspired by. Um, In our professional training program, we have a lot of homework assignments that we do with the students at the very start of their program with us so that we can learn their backstory and what inspires them before we start to layer our our perspective on top of them so that if someone does come in and they're inspired by the music of an Indian sitar player and uh, Malakam work in India, we can make sure that we hold on to that artistic background as we're helping them develop their own fresh and new material. Do you feel like the students have been getting better or worse, or maybe those aren't good terms to use, but how have they changed in like your years of teaching as far as what kids are coming and asking to learn or what they already have or, or don't have? Certainly technology has changed in the last 10 years. Um, so the ability to videotape yourself and uh, learn from that has shifted and the ability to watch what other people are creating has definitely shifted. And we're still trying to explore as artistic cre- uh, coaches how to harness those really valuable tools without squashing the individual's creativity. Um, we are so judgmental about what we see of ourselves on video that I fear that a lot of people don't trust the creative process f- 
for long enough to be able to find what they can actually make look good. Mm. And I think that's especially true about duo work because to get two people in sync doing material that has uh, artistic uh, value um, takes repetition. Um, so that, you know, you step on the left foot at the same time in order to both arrive at the place you want to arrive at the same time. If you videotape that and it doesn't look right because you're off sync, you might be scrapping tons of really valuable research because it doesn't look right Mm -hmm. or because you look fat or because the video cameras making you look flat or slow. Um, so I think there's a real value to being able to videotape and, uh, remember research, but I think we're far too judgmental too soon and scrap really valuable material. Mm. And then when we get to the research that people do watching other people on YouTube and Vimeo and things like that, I think we are also as newer students being super judgmental about our own palette because we're comparing ourselves usually to professionals or people who are graduating from their third year at the National Circus School in Montreal, for example. And our palette as first year, second year students is not going to be as strong as the palette of a professional. And again, people will scrap their material or um, copy other people's material because they're, they don't have the palette. And when I say palette, I think of, uh, beginner students coming to us with sort of black and white and gray. Mm-hmm. Um, they have some of the tools, they have a couple of paintbrushes, they can draw outlines and things, but they don't have vibrancy and they don't have the colors. They don't have the physical capacity of virtuosity and they're judging themselves through video against people who have that virtuosity and it's a really hard dissatisfying place to be i bet also because some of those videos it's very hard to tell if people can actually do those tricks more than two times in an hour or you know actually stringing together an act where you see particularly i'd say for juggling and acrobatic videos where you go oh my god i cannot believe those people can do those things but you also don't see like the 10 takes where they have missed it just before. Exactly. And we also don't see whether they are compelling humans in a live arena. And yeah, circus is a performance art. And I thoroughly believe that in order to be a performance, you need an audience. And so when you're looking at something on video, you're losing three quarters of the really important qualities that make those people circus performers because you're just seeing the circus having that outdoor space will be amazing for you know increasing stage time for for students increasing stage time for students but also increasing um the virtuosity of performance not just the virtuosity of the toolbox and the palette that the students have um we are a trick-based society um uh, i don't know if it's the society of instant gratification that Americans are known for or the instant gratification that our young people are being trained for. Um, But people are not used to putting in the time and the work. And it's it takes time to develop that palette. And you need to get on stage multiple times. You need to be in the studio for hours and hours and hours in order to develop that. 
So what are you seeing in, in circuits today? Do you feel like the, the industry is growing or shrinking or just staying the same but changing? What do you think is, what are the main themes that are happening? I think that circus is in a really interesting place right now that actually started many years ago, so probably five or six years ago. The demise of Ringling Brothers is a real uh, business decision. Um, it was a very small percentage of Feld Entertainment. And if you look at their decision purely from a financial standpoint, of course you would get rid of the part of the business that is only 2% and isn't doing really well. And that Disney can't buy. And that Disney can't buy, exactly. Um, and that model of spectacle becoming too expensive mm. and uh, too hard to manage in the logistics of things, uh, we've been seeing that for a long time. What we are also seeing is the rise of the ensemble company. And um, that is going to be really interesting to see where it goes. How many ensemble companies can we handle? How can circus become as ubiquitous to the American stage or the American performance um, audience as uh, dance and music and some of the other things that people just sort of expect to participate in and to watch as audience members. And then we also have the um, nuances of the American and North American uh, circus world versus what is happening in the rest of the, the world. Mm. And some of the things that we don't have as much control over as artists, I think are actually the things that are gonna result in whether where, where the future of circus is gonna go. So health insurance, um, employment, um, taxes and employment rules and laws. Those are two things that are Huge really going to affect the future of circus. And visas. And it's visas. It's possible to hire you know, non-American performers. You're going to have to hire American performers. Yeah. And then we can go into the fundraising side of things that a lot of really awesome performances are happening in America by foreign companies because they're countries are paying for them to come to yeah. America to tour in America but America the United States doesn't pay for American companies to tour in foreign soils or to tour in American or to tour in American soils so we're actually uh, if you're an American company creating new work you're competing against foreign companies yeah. in your hometown. Isn't that Keith Bindlestiff talked a lot about on his episode about the frustration of having a circus company where you have to go to these same festivals and you're putting up your own cash and they're not at all? Are you guys doing the Smithsonian this summer? We are doing the Smithsonian this summer, and I struggled to put together a program that wouldn't cost us an arm and a leg to go, but that would also yourself, allow us to pay your way to do it's a government your way. show. Yep, and they they've come a little ways in terms of a little bit more support for some of the hotel fees and the travel fees, but it is essential pay your way. And it's pay your way for what I think of is going to be a great marketing opportunity to use their name mm -hmm. in the future. But I'm still not sure how useful the actual presence on site is going to be. Yeah. Um, I hope that I will be pleasantly surprised and that there will be a lot of people that will discover circus in an entirely new way. But I sort of doubt that they're going to call 
NECA and sign up for classes simply yeah. because they saw us there. What we're doing is actually um, a private lesson model. So we are part of the circus school and I'm sending two of my top aerial coaches, Amy Hancock and Jamie Hodson, and they're going to be teaching private lessons. So if anybody out there is in the Washington, D.C. area or is going to be in the Washington area over the 4th of July holidays, um, you can take private lessons from NECA coaches Definitely in that. the air-conditioned uh, building that is part of the Smithsonian event. Uh, so we usually wrap up our podcast with the same three questions we ask all of our guests. The first one being, has there been a piece of advice you've received, good or bad, that has stuck with you? I think the best piece of advice that I ever got came to me from... Uh, in, from Boris uh, Varhofsky, I'm saying his last name wrong, but the head coach at Cirque du Soleil. And it wasn't so much a piece of advice, but an acknowledgement of something that I was doing that made me different than other people. So as I mentioned, Serenity and I had really no background when we got hired by Cirque du Soleil. And we were brought up there to train for uh nine months to put an act together uh, on swinging trapeze, which we had never done before. And we also had a fixed trapeze section. And we worked our butts off because we felt like we, or I felt like we, I barely deserved to be there. Serenity had more background and training at that point. So she had a little bit more uh, self uh, uh, self-awareness of where she was in that space. Um, and we were the first people to be there every day, and we were the last people to leave, and we busted our butts. And five months into it, they had us do our act presentation for everybody at the head office. And um, we actually missed one of the tricks in the swinging section. And we, uh, I just kept going. So we kept going with the trick where you sort of like sit up, you switch the safety line over. We looked over at each other and we decided we were going to do it again. I looked at my line holder. I just stood up. The music kept going and I just went ahead, redid the trick, performed the heck out of it, even though we'd missed a trick, came down. And uh, about an hour later, Boris asked us to go into his office and he said, "Um, there are a lot of people who did not want you to be here because of your background and because of your age. And the artistic director said they would work with you and the coach agreed to work with you, but I didn't want you here. And I've watched you every single day through this glass door that leads out into the uh, gymnasium. And I noticed that you worked harder than anybody else. We don't have to uh, remind you about the choreography homework that you have to do. You're on time, uh, you're respectful, and congratulations. And that really sticks with me, and I tell that to a lot of people. You can be the most amazing physical performer and you could be able to pull it out of your butt whenever you need to if you need to do a standing back tuck but if you can't remember your passport when you show up at the airport and if you can't remember your dance belt and if you're late for rehearsals and you're not warmed up you're not going to make it in this industry you're going to make it in this industry especially in the american circus industry if you get all your ducks in a row and you're easy to work with and you've got some really great material to put out on stage that is awesome advice and very very true um 
for somebody who's getting into circus uh, at a very beginner level, is there a movie or a live show or a book or a song or anything as an artistic reference you would suggest they go check out? When we have our first-year students uh, come to us for the first time, we have a couple of pieces of homework that we give them to do. And the first is where they need to provide us with things that inspire them. And that can be an act that they love or a piece of music that they love. And then we give them additional research of the people that we think they need to be aware of. And I tend to go to some of the older performances that are very difficult to find on video, so they're hard to share. Um, There's a trapeze act that Sylvia Zerbini does where she is such a classic traditional performer. She comes in with the little clogs, takes the clogs off, uh, climbs up the rope without using her legs, gets up to the trapeze, and basically sits up there and presents for a little while, puts the chalk on, um, and does a couple of really, really clean tricks. And by then you're thinking, okay, she's a beautiful performer and she's got some really clean tricks and she looks great. And then she does this crazy beat from the bottom of the bar half turn to a heel hang whoa really high up in the air with no apparent mats and no safety line and then it's so amazing that she just goes ahead and she does it again and that's one of the things that I like my students to see because you can be so simple about the material that you present but if you present it with a real honesty um, it can be so amazing. Um, and there's a couple other traditional performers that I recommend that people see. Um, I think that's a great point because there's so much technique that is forgotten or just lost in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just by watching old videos, you can find stuff that, you know, you never knew people were doing. I think that traditional circus is going to very soon become the new wave because we're starting to get far away from the very simple presentational style of traditional circus and um you know probably within 10 years doing something in that clean uh presentational way may become the new thing that nobody's ever seen because it's all about you know the the complex choreographic wrapping yourself up in the trapezes and and the fabrics and how many million ways can you tie a belay knot in the fabric which is super super cool but we're starting to get used to that as the artistic yeah, it's model like a pendulum. it's going to swing back the other direction exactly so last question who else should Lindsay and i interview on the podcast I spend so much time with circus instructors um, that I think the names that really come to my mind when you ask about who you should interview are some of the circus instructors out there. Um, I think that um, Amy Hancock, who is one of the instructors at the New England Center for Circus Arts, would be a great person. She uh, has a club med background, but also a European circus school background, and then has been teaching and performing all over the world and has a really good European sort of uh, aesthetic uh, awareness. Um, And Jamie Hodgson is also a fabulous uh, teacher and has really helped us uh, evolve the educational side of circus, especially in the vertical arts. Um, 
Some other people that come to mind are uh, Peter Gold, who mm-hmm. is a flying trapeze instructor, who um, was actually the first person to put me on the flying trapeze when he was teaching at Club Med. Then he ended up uh, as a catcher on Ringling Brothers, uh, working with some really famous names. And then he started his own company called Trapeze Experience, teaching self-esteem and um, you know personal growth work using the flying trapeze. And then he recently completed, or is just about to finish up in days now, um, as one of the uh, people in command at Ringling Brothers, um, on the on the boots on the ground people. Um, And I think his perspective about circus in America would be very different than some of the other people that I think you've you've interviewed. Um, uh, His wife is a Mongolian contortionist, Undarma Gold. Mm. So they share a really broad background that's really different than uh, the uh, contemporary circus background. Oh, fantastic. And how can listeners find out more about NECA and your fundraising campaign? We have a website, obviously, which is the New England Center for Circus Arts uh, main website. And if you add slash crowdfunding to the end of that, it will take you to our current um, project, which is raising a little over $90,000 for the equipment that fits inside the facility. So we've got bank loans that help us with um, setting up the facility that will be opening up June 19th. Um, but we have a lot of stuff that we actually have to pay out of pocket for. And that's the cool stuff for me. That's the, you know, flying trapeze, which is being built by Scott Osgood, who has been making the suspended nets for Cirque du Soleil. Um, it's going to be the 50th trapeze built by Bobby Bates of Bobby's Big Top. And um, we also have a trampoline uh, and an ingrown, uh, sorry, an in-ground pit, and those all cost a lot of money. So the crowdfunding is for ninety thousand dollars, and you can go on to the website www.necenterforcircusarts.org/crowdfunding. And if you're listening on your phone, if you hit the info button, you'll see a link to it in the in the podcast description. Elsie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been too many years since you've driven up and taken classes at our school. Yes, it has. That was our interview with Elsie Smith. If you like our podcast, make sure to like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, tweet us, or email us at hello at hideawaycircus.com. Where should they email us? (laughs) Hello. Hello. Or email us at hello at hideawaycircus.com. Have a good week. week. Happy Easter Passover and anything else you celebrate.